Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 63. Business is now being hit in several ways. I mean, there have been changes to particularly US export controls to counter China. They've made quite a lot of changes. My name is Depesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global and host of the podcast Trade Finance Talks. We've partnered up with City and Financial's new Global Sanctions Regime Summit, a one-day virtual conference on the 12th of July 2021, discussing how the geopolitical landscape has changed over the past 12 months, looking at how European, UK and US regimes could impact trade. The legal and regulatory regimes around sanctions regulation continues to change. The UK's domestic agenda has changed since its withdrawal from the EU. US-Russian tensions continue to escalate following cyber attacks and voting interference. And EU-China relations continue to deteriorate following the human rights incidents. Reporting export incidents, whether on a voluntary or involuntary basis, as well as investigating non-compliance in relation to trade finance operations, is of huge importance to multinationals, banks and policymakers. With that in mind, today we're joined by Spencer Chilvers, Head of Export Control Policy at Rolls-Royce, to discuss export controls, the current sanctions environment and the future. Spencer, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Hello. Good morning, Deepesh. So quick introduction in no more than 30 seconds. Who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do? I'm Spencer Chilvers. I work as Head of Export Control Policy at Rolls-Royce PLC. That's the company that makes aero engines and uh, other sorts of power, but not the cars. I joined Rolls-Royce in June 2010. And before that, I was in government doing kind of the same sort of role that I'm doing now. It was slightly, of course, different perspective. Thank you very much. And let's just go into a bit more detail on your current role. Can you give an overview of, I guess, how you came into this position from government and now your responsibilities as that head of the export control policy unit at Rolls-Royce? Yes, certainly. I mean, what my role here in the company is, is to develop our own internal policies on export control and sanctions. In doing that as well, We liaise with governments on new laws that they wish to bring in, individual cases. Also work with trade associations as well in sort of developing the atmosphere that we're due to work under. It's good for both sides. They understand, for instance, for governments, we understand where they're coming from and we can tell our people in our companies about that. And also they can learn from us about uh, how to actually implement things and the degree of compliance cost and overhead that certain measures may, we may find that those measures actually uh, involve us in. So that is basically, in a nutshell, what I'm doing. Thanks very much, Spencer. I think that knowledge sharing is really, really important, particularly in the field of sanctions and export controls. Can you explain the process of strategic export controls and what that actually means in relation to your role at Rolls-Royce? Strategic export control is different from sanctions. 
in that it uh, mainly revolves around lists of items that are, are on lists and which are subject to export licensing. Those items are goods, software and technology, some of which are for a direct military use, and others are called dual-use items because they could be of use for a conventional military or weapons of mass destruction use, but they also have uses more widely in all sorts of different industries. And so what we need to do there is to ensure that we understand what items that we have as a company, or we know whether or not they're actually on export control lists, and we apply for licenses when the regulations determine that we should. So therefore, what I do there is to ensure that the policies that we have as a company ensure that we can comply with those controls and that our compliance program covers uh, the things that we need to do to ensure that we are in a position to comply. How are export incidents actually investigated? Really what we're looking for here is people to come forward if they think there are instances where our processes are falling down, whether there's non-compliance with export control or sanctions regulations, whether that's something to do simply with our policies or procedures, or whether there is an infringement of an export control or sanctions regulation. This is, is something that we encourage all staff to do. So it's not just necessarily the export control managers in the businesses and functions who find these things. It could be a range of people. And we then have a process to log these occurrences and then to investigate them to see whether or not there has been a non-compliance event, what we're going to do about it. Uh, some of these, of course, require us then to report to governments through a voluntary disclosure process. But those aren't don't happen that often, but they do happen. Then we need to learn from those. And when we make a voluntary disclosure to a government, we also should identify how are we going to ensure that it doesn't happen again? Let's go into a bit more detail on that, and perhaps in relation to the UK and US export controls. Ooh. Why would Rolls-Royce consider submitting voluntary disclosures? Well, basically, I mean, we're encouraged to do so by both the US and UK governments. You'll see if you look on their particular websites under the export controls, there are provisions to make voluntary disclosures. When we have infringed part of the government regulations, because we're all human and we all make mistakes. Some of these mistakes could be major, some of them could be relatively minor. Nevertheless, if we don't make these disclosures, people begin to wonder why, why we're not. As I said, we're all human. And in these circumstances, if you don't have a decent compliance program, which also includes an audit function, you're never going to know whether you're compliant or not. So in a way, it shows to government that you are actually on top of what you're doing. You recognise when you've made a mistake and you try and fix it. Now, if you look at um, cases where people have been fined, often with US export controls, huge fines, those occur if you've had continued non-compliance in particular areas over a long period of time. And it's taken you a long time to realise exactly what you're up to. So 
those are the people who tend to get clobbered more. And a lot of voluntary disclosures, they will acknowledge the receipt of it and they may ask further questions, but they won't take it any further. So making a voluntary disclosure isn't the case where you expect to get a fine or something worse than that. These processes, ones where we find that um, as long as you're fully transparent and you're factually accurate, defence in avoiding costly administrative proceedings and settlements. It is anyway, on strategic export control side, seen as a good thing to do. I think if you do this properly, it's a way with working with your regulators and their enforcement authorities to show that you are on top of what you're doing and you're able to remedy those things. And if you look at things like the Commerce Department, they regularly have enforcement actions against people. It's usually for consistent non-compliance over quite a long period of time. So if you have an export incident investigation and a process for trying to knock it on the head early, you won't find yourself in the position of having missed things which you should have fixed. I mean, some of them could be fairly minor in that you didn't have the right documentation for a particular export or inadvertently sent an item which wasn't on a license but would have been acceptable if you'd asked for it in the first place. Those sort of things against cases where it's quite obvious that people have been trying to subvert the regulations to export to places they shouldn't have done. Through your compliance programme, you try and ensure that the latter of those two cases is never the case and that uh, you can fix the other things relatively painlessly and ensure you don't do it again. Of course, if you have lots of minor infringements which you declare, and they're all on the same lines, and they all involve the same sort of failure, then they will look more closely at you. You could get a fine that way. So it's a case of ensuring that any non-compliance is fairly limited and you fix it, rather than long-term systemic problems or long-term systemic deliberately trying to subvert the regulations. Thanks very much, Spencer. And I guess there's a bit of a brand slash reputational error around voluntarily submitting export incidents. Let's talk about dual-use regulation now. EU has a new dual-use regulation that will come into force shortly. What are the main takeaways from this new regulation and how has Rolls-Royce got to adapt? The new regulation comes into force on the 9th of September. And if you're looking at it from a UK point of view, it is not a directly applicable regulation except in the case of Northern Ireland. So the UK has got to decide whether or not it actually wants to mimic in its own legislation some of the major factors, the major new parts in the new EU dual-use regulation. And so far, there has been nothing which actually, on what position the UK wants to talk. I believe that before the UK left the EU, it was of the opinion that, that some of the direction the new EU dual-use items regulation would take was something that they weren't in favour of. Really, what it the main change in the dual-use items regulation, apart from changes in definitions and things like that, and an extension of some of the controls on brokering and uh, technical assistance for dual-use items in a, in a sort of weapons of mass destruction scenario is the new controls on surveillance equipment, which can be used in certain states to infringe people's human rights. 
I think a case that the UK was against the notion of this is the fact the dual-use items regulation had always been one which you take on the regime commitments, the export control regime commitments that member states have agreed to apply those throughout the union. I mean, I mentioned earlier the notion of lists of dual-use items and military items and certain provisions that go with that. This takes the regulation beyond implementing what uh, has happened in the export control regimes that EU member states belong to, down a road of unilateral controls for particular items where you cannot get export control regime, international export control regime agreement to that. You can't get export control regime agreement to all that's on this list because the export control regimes aren't exactly, their raison d'etre is different. The main one that you look at for such items is the Vassanar arrangement, which looks at conventional military and dual-use items and is looking at preventing conflict through accumulations of weapons. So it's more like a peace-building regulation in its sort of loosest format. These sort of human rights considerations aren't uncovered by it, although some of the equipment is, because it could be used in a military context, not to be looking here at just a human rights context. So it was taking the whole regulation down a different path. And you could say, well, all right, it's uh, surveillance technology today. What might it be tomorrow? One of the other trumpeting measures in the, the new EU dual-use items regulation was the level playing field notion, which is if anybody listens to anything that comes out of the EU, particularly about Brexit, trade talks and so on, you keep hearing about the level playing field. Well, in a way, unilateral EU controls is in fact working in the opposite direction to a level playing field. That is the main area that is worth highlighting in the new regulation. It's the most controversial one. But uh, I know civil society groups said it was a landmark development which will allow the public, civil society, journalists and parliamentarians to scrutinise licensing decisions to ensure they are in accordance with law and provide an invaluable insight into the EU trade in surveillance technology. Because one of the other areas was uh, the, the Commission would publish an annual report detailing what each member state had done in this area. So it has its pluses and minuses. Absolutely. And I think on those human rights issues, you know, there are lots of concerns around the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. I think there were some OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises. So lots of things to consider there. Let's talk about Brexit. And as the UK has transitioned into a post-Brexit economy, how do you see exports being impacted? And perhaps we can talk about things like Belarus sanctions and Russian <laughs> sanctions here with respect to UK. Yeah, I think now that the UK is out of the EU, although they're all maintaining sanctions are coordinated, at least, for instance, on Belarus, it's interesting to notice that you have a divergence in listing people and entities that are going to be covered by the sanctions. So, for instance, in the last round of coordinated Belarus sanctions, you had a situation where the EU and Canada sanctioned a number of large Belarusian companies, but the UK and the US did not. These disparities mean that for a company, for instance, operating in, in those countries, it does become quite difficult because something could be quite legal from one country you're in 
but not legal from another. And then you have to start looking at the incorporation of the companies that you have and the legislation in place to see whether or not you can or can't go ahead or whether you won't go ahead on either legal grounds or reputational grounds or a sort of combination of the two. So for companies, I mean, for instance, like Rolls-Royce, which operates in the UK, the US and Canada. On the sanctions front, at any rate, you have four different regimes with on the same subject. In a way, that is also working Russia sanctions more on the basis that the US has done a lot more than the EU or the UK. And you've also got issues surrounding things like the pipelines and so on. Nord Stream 2, isn't it? My memory serves me yeah. correctly. And the imposition of sanctions on European companies by the US, which is uh, for something that's of concern to the EU. So there are lots of areas where things uh, can change. But if you look at just generally... What's happened if you look for export controls, the strategic export controls on the differences now that we're in Brexit, is that uh, for military items particularly, it's not the question of exports being more difficult from the UK. The countries concerned in the EU have, and quite a number of them, have sort of tightened up on the licensing to the UK, wanting more assurances and more paperwork and so on, which if you're using suppliers from the EU, can have an impact on your ability to get components quickly because of the extra licensing hoops that have to be gone through now that we're no longer within the union. So that's had an impact and it's the major one from an export or import point of view on the licensing front. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Spencer. So I guess just to wrap up, this podcast and we've discussed a lot of themes here from the impact of the new UK regime following its withdrawal from the EU, the impact of operating in a company with legs in the US, Canada, UK, EU, etc. And also some of the, I guess, the wider impacts of considering human rights issues, um, particularly with regards to China. In the increasingly polarized world that we're now operating in. I'm going to ask two questions. One, where do you see exports and export controls headed and going? And and two, is this just too fast paced for businesses to be continuously rapidly adapting to? Business is now being hit in several ways. I mean, there have been changes to particularly US export controls to counter China. They've made quite a lot of changes. The UK and EU haven't so much. But then it's the consideration of license applications, which can take longer and may be refused. There are the issues, particularly, I think, when you come to look at uh, China and the polarised world, is you've got the Chinese policy of military-civil fusion, which has led uh, states to tighten up on their licensing to look very closely at uh, protecting key technologies, things like quantum computing, big data, semiconductors, 5G, some advanced nuclear technology, aerospace technology and AI, uh, which China is seeking to exploit the inherent dual-use nature of many of these technologies, which have both civil and military applications. You've got a greater emphasis on looking at foreign direct investment, both within the EU, the UK and the US, trying to keep companies out of investing in those companies and siphoning off technology through 
being embedded in it. Um, you've got the uh, notion of technological sovereignty, particularly within the EU, it's been talked about, saying that 21st century will be digital in all its aspects, includes traditional areas of state sovereignty, such as defence, security and space. And there's a growing competition between great powers to control the new digital and other emerging technologies. So I think you have will see increasingly more of this type of thing. There were agreements made during the G7 in the margins of that with the UK and with the EU in bilateral discussions as well as looking to work together on these issues. You also had in the G7 an agreement to counter the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative by having a G7 type initiative. So yes, I think that we will see at least uh, in the coming years increased polarisation and it won't just be China, it will be Russia as well. So yes, there are challenges ahead for all of us, both in governments and in business, to know quite what to do. And you have the Chinese as well with new laws, export control, which would go probably broader than the ones that we look at, including strategic items like rare earths. And so you've got to worry about supply chains and things. You've also got their retaliatory controls that they've introduced uh, against being sanctioned by the US and the EU and others. And so that creates a great uncertainty for business, particularly in instances where the regulations are very high level at the moment. So everybody's guessing on exactly what's going to happen. So that's also a a level of uncertainty about what you can do and what you can't do and how you might be caught. So all in all, yes, it's going to be an interesting time. Challenging times ahead and it doesn't look like things are going to get any more straightforward. So lots at the front of mind for anyone in an export control policy. Spencer, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Trade Finance Talks today and we're really looking forward to City and Financial's new Global Sanctions Regime Summit, which is a one-day virtual conference on the 12th of July. And we really look forward to hearing from you. And to our listeners, remember to sign up to uh, City and Financial's conference next week and and you'll hear from Spencer and, and many more excellent speakers in and around lots of areas around sanctions, new regimes and and export control. It's been a pleasure having you, Spencer. Look forward to hearing from you soon. Bye now. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com 